This is a Rooster Teeth production. April 15th, 2002. Air China Flight 129, a Boeing 767 with 166 people on board, is preparing to land in Busan, South Korea after a flight from Beijing, China. The weather is less than ideal and is changing as the crew is preparing to land on runway 36 left. Shortly before landing, the crew is informed that due to a shift in the winds, they will need to do a circling approach and land in the opposite direction on the same runway, 18 right. The first officer is flying the plane and has the runway in sight as they are flying the downwind leg of their approach, but he comments that the winds are making flying difficult. The captain takes over and begins making a turn to the right to line up with the runway. Due to clouds moving into the area, the captain asks the first officer to help him find the runway. The clouds begin to part and to their horror, the crew sees a mountain directly in front of them. The crew applies full power and tries to climb, but it's too late. The plane slams into the side of a mountain, killing 129 people on board. Miraculously, the captain survives and can talk to investigators. What does the captain say happened to this flight? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello. Hi, Chris. <laughs> We're here with another episode, another incident. This is, uh, an, I want to point out, this is an episode involving South Korea, but this is not an episode involving Korean Airlines. We talked about this okay. the other day. The Korean Airlines had a had a bad track record for a while, but this, uh, this just coincidentally happens to be an incident that happens in South Korea, but not Korean Airlines. Before we get into the meat of the episode, as always, I want to remind you, please give us a follow on social media if you can, at Black Box Down Pod. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We post supplemental images and things uh, on there. I think I think it's it's good to follow along if you want. Mm-hmm. No pressure. Yeah, because you get all the cool stuff like yeah. um, Tiny Town. <laughs> <laughs> what, what did it end up? It's really called something else. What was it called? Safety City is what it's actually called. Safety yeah. City. We had, we had a few people message us on social media and let us know that in Lubbock, it's not called Tiny Town. It's Safety City. So the mystery is solved, Chris. Yeah. And I, as soon as I heard safety, I was like, that's it. That's it. Uh, <laughs> it but anyway, this is a reference to an episode, what, like two weeks ago? It was the Air France one. Uh, yeah, I don't know when it'll be in relation to this one. Two or three weeks before this episode. Yeah. Oh, oh, we've got uh, some new merch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's great. Yeah, it's a new shirt and a new mug in like the style of like a VOR information box that you would see on a sectional chart when you're flying. And the mug has like a sectional chart for the Austin area as the background uh, printed on it. I think it's super cool, super like aviation geeky, aviation nerdy kind of stuff. That's very like the aviation and black box down combined <laughs> into a yeah. <laughs> into a, a shirt and a mug. I, I love them personally. I think they're great. Yeah, you can check those out at store.roosterteeth.com or by looking at our link tree. Yeah, give it give it give a look see see if you you know if you like it and if you do yeah and the link tree's on our social media as well. Yeah. Okay, I want to get into uh, into Air China flight. One two nine here. Let's get into the meat of this episode. Okay, let's get meaty. Let's get meaty. This was a, not, a passenger I like flight. I like that phrase. Let's 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 dig into it. <laughs> so this was a passenger flight from Beijing to Busan, South Korea, uh-huh. on April fifteenth, two thousand two. We're very close to that anniversary today. It's unintentional. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's almost twenty years ago to the date that we're recording this. Uh, not quite. But it's total coincidence. It just so happened that we we were we were doing this episode right around this time. The flight was crewed by Captain Wu Jin Lu, who was 30 years old with 6,497 flight hours. First officer was Gao Li Ji, who was 29 with 5,295 flight hours. And they had a second officer with them, Ho Zhang Jing, who was 27 with 1,775 flight hours. And the aircraft was a 17-year-old Boeing 767, had over 40,000 hours and about 14,500 cycles. Uh, There were eight flight attendants and 155 passengers on board. 
So the crew reported for duty at 2 p.m. Beijing time on the 14th, and they received their paperwork for the flight. And, you know, they do their routine examination of the plane. You know, they walk around, make sure everything's okay. They decide everything's, everything's fine, everything's fit for flying. The captain then spent the night in company sleeping quarters. And then the next day, the captain received the final paperwork, and the flight took off in the morning at 8.37 a.m., which was 17 minutes behind schedule. Okay. Company sleeping quarters, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I guess like so they don't have to commute in, you know, yeah. don't have to worry about traffic. It's like they can get their full rest. I think it's 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 neat. That doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that it's it's not always necessarily on airport property. Sometimes the company will have a hotel or a house, accommodation somewhere close to an airport, too. I think all this means is that it was company provided sleeping quarters. He didn't sleep at home just yeah. to be clear about that. So at 1050 in the morning, which is about, you know, two hours after takeoff, the crew started getting the ATIS information for the Pusan airport, which, you know, the ATIS information is like typically it's automated information. Typically it's weather closures on taxiways or anything going on that they need to know about specific to that mm-hmm. airport they're going to be landing at. However, when they tune into the ATIS, both the first officer and the second officer said they couldn't clearly hear the information. Like, it's, what do you mean they couldn't hear? Like the staticky or it was too quiet? I don't know. All I know is that they complained they couldn't clearly hear it. It could be either it was, you know, too quiet. It could be it was staticky. It could be maybe they didn't understand it. Like it, uh, it was probably being broadcast in English. I don't know. Oh. It could be a language barrier, but I don't know that for certain. The ATIS information stated that the wind was at 230 degrees at six knots. There were two miles of visibility, several layers of clouds, and runway 36 left was the active runway. So, you know, there's a little bit of wind. It's not much. Six knots is pretty low. 230, it's, you know, kind of offset from the runway. But again, six knots, that's pretty low. Two miles visibility is pretty low. That's uh, kind of uncomfortable, especially in a big plane like this when you're going so fast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the important thing is also several layers of clouds. So it wasn't a clear day by any stretch of the imagination. So based on all this, the first officer started an approach briefing and completed the approach checklist. And the approach briefing is just like they're going over, you know, kind of confirming everything. We're coming into this airport. We're going to land on this runway. We're going to descend like this. Mm-hmm. You know, these are going to be our speeds. Just kind of going over it and making sure everyone's on the same page. Uh-huh. While this is going on, the ATIS information updated and the crew listened for the new information at 1057. The updated weather showed the wind was now at 220, 220 degrees at seven knots and part of the sky was being obscured by fog. So the wind changed a little bit, you know, 10 degrees difference, increased a little bit, still kind of negligible, but it's yeah. the, the, the important thing is that it's, it's moving. It's a little variable, I guess, because it's moving around a little bit. I mean, that, again, not that it's a ton. It's 230 yeah, to 220, that's not, a, that, that's not a huge difference. That doesn't sound like much compared to some other things we've talked about. Yeah. About four minutes later, the second officer said, I will do communicating. Others keep listening. I came to Pusan not too often. From that point on, the second officer handled all the communications with air traffic control. At 11.06, mm-hmm. the flight was cleared to descend to 6,000 feet, and a couple minutes later, the air traffic controller asked the flight about its approach category, and the second officer responded with, please say again. When the controller asked again, the first officer stated to the second officer they were approaching category Charlie. The second officer at first said, what? But then replied to the controller they were category Charlie. And we, don't, we haven't talked about this kind of thing before, uh-huh. but the approach category... It's for the controller to kind of know what their approach speed might be. So kind of just like giving the approach controller information about how fast they're going to be coming in. Probably okay. like, so the controller, you know, the controller is dealing with multiple planes. So he's probably like trying to figure out this plane's going to land and then, you know, who's coming in behind them. If you can squeeze anyone in ahead of them, it's just for like spacing. Okay. But I mean, wouldn't the speed be normally about the same? 
Usually, yeah, but I think, you know, he's just trying to verify with them just to be, okay. you know, it, it doesn't hurt to double check is yeah, yeah. what it boils down to. Plus, you know, every plane might be a little different as far as their approach speed. So, it, again, just doesn't hurt to talk and confirm, you know, exactly what yeah, they're yeah. going to be doing. While they were talking, the ATIS information updated again. And the important bit of information that gets updated is that the active runway changed from 3-6 left to 1-8 right. And to expect a circling approach for 1-8 right. And the weather minimum category D and E below landing minimum. So, essentially, the important thing to, to note here is that the direction they're supposed to land on the runway changed. We've talked okay. about this before. Yeah. You're like 3-6 indicates that that runway is, you know, you're going to land or take off to the north. 1-8 indicates it's to the south. In this case, 3-6 left and 1-8 right are the same runway, just from different directions. Okay. So does that mean they have to go in and then do a 180 around? Right. That means they're going to have to kind of like swing out to the left of the airport to the west, circle, and then land facing back to the south. Okay. And while, you know, while this is going on, like we said, there were clouds and fog and, you know, they've lowered and reduced visibility even more. And at 11.09, the controller informed the flight of the runway change and asked again if their approach category was Charlie or Delta. The captain said Charlie and the second officer told this to the controller. The captain and the first officer started discussing landing on 1-8 right, and they said that their minimum circling altitude would be 700 feet mean sea level. And the captain said, we won't enlarge the traffic pattern. The mountain is all over that side. So now they're saying, we're going to circle. Our minimum altitude is going to be 700 feet above sea level. Okay. So the airport in Busan is really low. Just for reference, the, the elevation of the Busan airport is six feet above sea level. So okay. when they... Okay. When they're setting their, their minimum circling altitude to 700 feet, essentially they're going to be 700 feet above the ground as well. Just I, I, I know that those numbers can be different sometimes. So I just wanted to make sure you have the correct altitude in your head when you're okay. imagining this. At 1113, the captain made the comment, it's raining. We didn't receive any information on rain. And then they set the flaps to one. After receiving some heading instructions and a clearance to 2,600 feet, mm -hmm. the captain made a comment that he's taking off his sunglasses and the visibility is not very good. What time of day? It's, what time did you say it was? This was at 11.13, so just before noon. Okay. So morning. At 11.15, the captain made another comment about the rainy area and instructed the first officer to extend the flaps to five. The captain then commented that the wind was strong and the controller issued the following instruction. Air China 129 turned left heading 030, cleared for ILS DME runway 36 left, then circle to runway 18 right, report field in sight. So this is telling them they, they got to turn left to that heading of uh, 30 degrees and that they were cleared to get to the DME. We've talked about DMEs before. They're cleared to mm -hmm. like this waypoint for runway 36 left. And then once they hit that, they have to circle to get to runway 18 right because it's the same runway. So they got to go around, like we said, and they got to land yeah. in a southerly facing direction. Okay. The second officer reads back, turn left heading 030, cleared. It's a little unintelligible. Approach 18 right. The captain then said, circle to land. The first officer acknowledged, cleared for ILS approach, 36 left, then circle to land, 18 right, report runway in sight. And the second officer said, okay, okay, I understand. Circle to land, 18 right, turn left, 030. So they're, they're all syncing up. They're making sure they all yeah. understand what has to happen here in order to land. And this all sounds normal, right? I mean, there's nothing wild. So far, this all seems normal. Nothing out of the ordinary so far. At 11.17, the first officer said, little more descent, position almost reached, ILS captured. The captain asked, do we maintain this altitude? And the first officer said not to maintain and to continue down to 700 feet. At 11.17, the first officer said, too strong wind, gear down. And then a sound similar to landing gear being lowered was recorded. Then the captain said, 
gear down, flaps 20. And the first officer replied with flaps 20. The controller then instructed them to descend to 700 feet. So everything seems to be going okay so far. Mm -hmm. At 11.18, at an altitude of 952 feet, the captain said he had the runway in sight, and the second officer relayed this to the controller. Wait, the runway in sight, but he still needs to, wait, loop around? Right. Okay. So they can see, because remember, they were approaching from the south. Yeah. Yeah, so they can see it now, so they got to, like... Head to that heading, like I said, zero. You know, get to the get to the waypoint, then turn for zero three zero, circle around, then land down to the south. So yeah, they're gonna they're gonna fly west of the runway in a circle and then come back down to the south. The crew were instructed to change frequencies and to circle west. The first officer then took control of the aircraft, and the autopilot was disconnected. As the aircraft reached seven hundred feet, there were several beeping sounds recorded, and the captain said, "Okay, maintain seven hundred, watching the altitude." And at this point, the airplane was at six hundred seventy-two feet. So this is the first hint that something's not right. Uh-huh. They were very clear. And they went over this multiple times. Their minimum altitude at this point should be 700 feet. And now they're at 672 feet. Yeah. I mean, that's not that. That's, that's not, not that, that bad. much low. Yeah. Right. But they're off. This is, not what, this is mm-hmm. not what they talked about. So at this point, there was a glide slope warning. And the first officer told the second officer to turn off the ILS. The captain then said to keep watching the runway. And the first officer told him, engage it again. Maintain present altitude 700 feet heading select. And the autopilot was re-engaged. But he said 700 feet, but they were lower. They're still a little low. Okay. At 11.20, the captain asked if the first officer could see the abeam end of the runway. And the first officer replied with, abeam runway end. And then the first officer said, the wind is too strong. It is very difficult to fly. After a few seconds, the captain said, turning base. And then he took control of the airplane. Uh, There's a few terms here I want to talk about. They said they were abeam the runway end. That just means they're like abreast of it they're parallel to it mm-hmm. so like when they say a beam runway end, that means that the plane is parallel to the end of the runway then the captain you know said turning base that means they're turning perpendicular to the runway before they make their turn for final so when they turn base they go from being parallel to the runway to being perpendicular to the runway and it's at this point where the captain takes control of the airplane okay and they're doing that is that just part of the looping around when they yeah. turn perp- yeah when you do your approach when you're parallel to the runway like that, in this case, it's like they were on their downwind approach. Then you turn base and then you turn final. And then final is where you touch down and you land. Okay. So as you know, the, the captain is taking control of the plane and turning base, the controller requested for the crew to report turning base. The captain said, turning right. The second officer responded to the controller with Wilco. The first officer then urged, turn quickly, not too late. The controller then issued a landing clearance and told the crew to check the wheels were down and told them they were not in sight. The second officer then replied, confirming the instruction, but then the local controller asked if they were landing, and the second officer replied with Roger. However, the approach controller then asked via intercom to people in the tower if they were going around, because you know, at this point, the controller can't see them. Uh-huh. According to the intercom records and tower controller's testimonies, there was no reply recorded from the tower controllers, and none of them heard the transmission from the approach controller. The local controller then asked the crew to say their intentions, but there was no response. So, like, the tower's a little worried. You know, they, the tower at this point should be able to see them. You know, if they're turning their base about to be on final and they can't see them. You know, they're looking out the window, but they don't see the plane where it's saying where it uh-huh. should be. At this time, the first officer said to the captain, pay attention to the altitude keeping. The captain replied with, assist me to find the runway. And the first officer said, it's getting difficult to fly. Pay attention to the altitude. At 11.21, the controller asked what their position was, and the second officer said they were turning on final. Remember, I said final Mm -hmm. is when they turn and they line up and land. The captain asked the first officer if he had the runway in sight, and he replied with, no, I cannot see out, must go around. But the captain didn't respond. 
Three seconds later, the first officer said, pull up, pull up. And the pitch attitude increased to 11.4 degrees and the engine thrust remained the same. What were they, What was their altitude? I'll get to that in just a second. Okay. <laughs> it, it, it's coming up. So, you know, uh, the first officer said, pull up, pull up. The pitch attitude increased to 11.4 degrees. Two seconds later, there's a sound of impact recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. And the aircraft impacted the mountain, which was located north of the airport, about two and a half miles from the runway threshold. Oh. And it hit at an elevation of 669 feet. So to answer your oh. question, they were at 669 feet. Man, they when they said minimum altitude of 700, they really meant minimum altitude. Well, yeah, like, I, I mean, the minimum altitude was important. I think the, the more critical thing here is that they were 2.5 miles away from the runway threshold. So yeah. they had gone too far north, essentially. So even if they had been at 700 feet, they still would have hit this mountain. I just want to throw that out there. Like the mountain is, is much higher than 700 okay. feet. The aircraft was completely destroyed in the impact in the post-crash fire. The first and second officer were killed along with six flight attendants and 121 passengers. There were 37 people who survived and all sustained major injuries. Before we get to the investigation portion of this incident, in reading and doing the research for this incident, you know, I watched, you know, we read about it, read reports, watch documentaries. There was a, a story there. They talked to one of the survivors in one of the documentaries I saw. Mm-hmm. And um, it was this um, tour guide who was, uh, you know, who's being interviewed. And he said that, you know, he had taken a group of tourists to China and that, you know, they were on this flight coming back to Korea. Uh-huh. But that, you know, they had arranged so that when they got to the airport, they were going to get to the airport early so that they could be upgraded to better seats near the front of the plane. But when they were on their way to the airport, the tour guide realized he forgot his passport at the hotel. So they had to turn the bus around and go back to the hotel to get his passport. And that by the time they got to the airport, all the good seats in the front of the plane were taken. So the tour group had to sit in the back. And he Uh said that everyone was mad at him and that, you know, he was like very apologetic about it. And, you know, he told everyone they could give, you know, they could take all of their tips back that they had given him, that he felt terrible about, you know, them missing their seats. Yeah. But because they moved, 90% of the tour group survived the accident. Wow. Like the people who were in the seats that they wanted up at the front, all of those people passed away. Oh. But it's just like that weird little thing that happens. It's like, you know, the tour guide feels bad. You know, everyone's mad at him. But 90% of them survived because he forgot his passport at the hotel. I wonder if they tipped him afterwards. <laughs> man, like, I don't, man, I don't know. That is, man, that, that that's is such a weird. Those, those are things that mess with your brain. You know, like you're yeah. like, well, what if I had, you know, what if just those little micro decisions that you that really shouldn't matter. Right. But they end up changing your, I mean, saving your life or, mm-hmm. yeah. I just thought that was a, a really interesting uh, story about like a group of people who were on this flight. Yeah. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger show with an undercover FBI agent posing as an Islamic terrorist. I grew up with the religion of Islam. After 9-11, my knee-jerk reaction was to simply help. But what blew my mind about this case was the fact that he was the epitome of evil. So we're going up to his apartment and it was right next to ground zero. And he put his arm around me and looked up to where the towers were. And he said, Tamar, this town needs another 9-11. And we're gonna give it to him. You'd think at that moment in time, I could have just gone up and did my job, but I couldn't. I imagined killing him right there and then. I imagined stabbing him in the eye with a pen I had in my pocket and leaving him for dead. To hear more from Tamar El-Nuri about what drew him to the exciting and dangerous life of undercover law enforcement work, check out episode 572 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Okay, anyway, the investigation. The investigation was carried out by the Korea Aviation Accident Investigation Board, 
And like I said, the captain survived, so they were able to interview the captain of this flight. How, but how did he? How did he survive? I mean, that is, every- yeah, I don't know. It is crazy that uh, he was able to survive. You know, it's really rare that mm-hmm. that happens. You know, a lot of the impact happens at the the fr- or the force of the impact happens at the front of the plane. Just luck, I guess. I don't know. That's uh, that's some really really crazy luck that he was able to survive. Yeah. So the captain testified his plan for the circling approach was to visually identify the runway on the final approach course to three six left. Turn 45 degrees to the left to a heading of 315 degrees, fly for 20 seconds, then turn right onto the downwind leg, like I said, parallel to the runway. Then after passing a beam the north end of the runway, time 20 seconds outbound for the base and final turns to landing. However, the combination of strong southerly winds from 210 degrees with a shallow bank turn delayed the downwind leg entry where the width of the pattern was about 1.1 miles when it should have been about 2 nautical miles. Simulations from this narrow downwind position to the base turn and after consistently showed overshooting the final course. Therefore, it's assumed that due to the narrow downwind width, it would have been difficult for the flight crew to confirm the runway visually during or after the base turn. Since the base turn was flown manually, the captain would have had to consign much of his attention to the attitude indicator and aircraft control, in addition to keeping external references and the runway in sight, which would have placed him under twofold workload. So all this boiled down, is saying mm-hmm. this was actually a very difficult thing that he was trying to do. He didn't have as much width away from the runway as he normally would have. He had, mm-hmm. he, you know, he was going to essentially have to be starting a timer and you know keeping track of time while wind was pushing him. And he was supposed to be able to look at the runway, but you know there were clouds couldn't and fogs, so he couldn't yeah. really see it. So like he was under a lot of workload, having to maintain all of these things. And like you know we had said, the uh, first officer had even commented that flying was difficult because of the wind that was pushing them at the time. So it was a it was a high stress situation. And then on top of that, the captain was sitting on the left side of the plane and the runways on his right side, which is why he's having to ask the first officer on the right side to help him look out the windows on that side of the plane. What should have like how should he have allocated the resources of the plane or like used the auto flying mechanism? I don't know. What could he have done differently? I mm, I don't want to get to that yet. (laughs) That's kind that's kind of like end of the episode conclusions kind of thing. But I'll tell you right now, right off the bat. There was a big problem in the fact that they couldn't see the runway. They're relying, being able to see it, and the clouds are there. I think at one point I said, even the first officer said that they should do a missed approach. Mm. They should have done a missed approach, circled, and then tried again. Uh, Once the clouds cleared and they were able to see the runway a little more clearly, the captain could also have been more diligent about keeping an eye on his timer and accounting for the wind that was pushing them as well. So like based immediately on what you're seeing here, that Mm -hmm. would be like the first things that I would pick up on. And then the captain stated that during the base turn, they entered clouds but did not execute an immediate go-around, having thought that he would go around after they rolled out on final. However, it was required to execute a go-around immediately if visual contact with the runway or ground references are lost or if the flight enters a cloud. Like I said, once they lose sight, you know, they're doing this visual approach, they should immediately go around. To do a visual approach like this, you need to be able to see the runway the entire time. Once you lose sight of it, go around. Try again. Even if they did a go-around, Anyway, I don't want to speculate on that. I'm not an airline airline pilot. I don't want to speculate on that. So the investigators determined that the failure to initiate a go-around at this point is an important factor in the circumstances that led to the accident. According to the captain's testimony, he had no experience with the circling approach that they had to do at the airport. Uh And the circling approach training on the Boeing 767 aircraft used only Beijing airport. So they had only, in the simulator and in training, they had only practiced at the Beijing airport. They'd never done it on another one, so he'd never done it in simulation at this airport. And since this airport was not classified as a special airport requiring additional training, the captain was probably unaware of the danger posed by the terrain in the vicinity 
of the circling approach area north of the runway during the circling approach. So he just probably was unaware of how close mm-hmm. the mountains were on the north side of the airport. The captain had landing experience on runway 36 left. However, this was his first circling approach to runway 18 right. And the runway change occurred while on the radar approach pattern, not allowing sufficient time to prepare for the circling approach, which may have placed him under undue pressure. So it was kind of like a last minute change. He didn't have time to really look at it and take it into account. So, you know, it just adds extra pressure on top of everything else going on. Yeah. Being unaware of Air China's operation specifications for circling approach weather minima of a wide body aircraft, the captain attempted the circling approach below the weather minimum of a wide body aircraft. Again, he didn't necessarily know this, but the the weather conditions were not suitable for what they were being asked to do. Oh, okay. While he selected a notified category, Charlie, to the controller, he actually flew the circling approach at the speeds appropriate for category Delta aircraft. In the exercise of his command authority over the other crew members, the captain failed to take into account the overall situation to make timely decisions. His knowledge of circling approach and execution of flight procedures were not according to the operations manual and procedures, and he did not clearly assign duties to his crew. So, again, just not getting everyone involved as much as he should have. He started, you know, things started getting difficult, and he started taking on everything by himself. Mm -hmm. If either the captain or the first officer had executed an immediate go-around when the first officer said that they should go around, the ground impact might have been avoided. However, since the captain was the pilot flying, the first officer probably could not take over control. Mm. As the first officer seated on the right side was in a better position than the captain had the runway in sight during the downward leg and base turn, he should have been more intent to keep the runway in sight and aggressively advise the captain. But he said nothing about whether the runway was in sight or lost until the captain asked him, have the runway in sight? which indicates the first officer did not perform his normal duty as pilot monitoring. Yeah, because if the uh, captain was flying and doing all the, everything, first officer should have been bare minimum. Like It's like when you're, when you're, someone's trying to, you're trying to find parking. <laughs> and you're like, hey, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good analogy. That's what I was going to say. It's like, you know, when you're, when someone's driving and you're in the passenger seat and you're like looking out, you know, looking further away for other parking spots, you yeah. you can, you can keep your eyes. You don't have to keep your eyes immediately in front of you. You, you know, can look around. Yeah. And in this case, yeah, the first officer should have been more aggressive in letting him know, like, hey, I lost sight of the runway. I can't see it. And that way they could do their go around. Yeah. The first officer demonstrated less than aggressive attitude towards his duties, and he neglected his duty of providing immediate advice when becoming cognizant of deviations from procedures, such as the prohibition of entering clouds during a circling approach. The second officer had trouble on the radios, and many of his readbacks were not correct. After the runway was visually identified on the approach to runway 36 left, The second officer read back only the circling approach instruction among the approach controller's control transfer instructions to the tower frequency and to conduct a circling approach. And contact with the tower was not established until on the downwind leg, being instructed again on the approach frequency. So he was just a little late in changing frequencies, maybe like not as sharp on the readbacks as he should have been. Yeah. Judging from the second officer's inappropriate responses and a number of communications with air traffic control, And also in relaying information to other crew members, Air China may need to review its English language training program for flight crew on international flights. Again, they can't definitively say that there was a language barrier. Just like I kind of said earlier, it's like it may have contributed. And and that's kind of what they're saying here. It doesn't hurt to, you know, review this English language training program and make sure everything is uh, on the up and up. Although it was incumbent on him as second officer primarily to handle air traffic control communications, he did not advise the captain of any procedural deviations, such as entering the clouds during the circling approach, which may indicate his lack of knowledge, experience, and positive attitude toward the proper performance of duties as a second officer. The Jepson's instrument approach chart used by the captain of Flight 129, who had no experience on the circling approach at this airport, had nothing wrong 
and its chart manufacturer standard, but it did not show any reference point for the circling approach, circling approach area, or any mountains north of the runway. The instrument approach chart was developed for the details of the instrument approach, thus it would be difficult to include dangerous terrain and obstacles precisely in the limited space on the chart. On top of that, there was only one copy of the Jepson manual provided to the crew, so it would not have been easy for the two crew members to cross-check the charts. So, again, they're saying there's nothing wrong necessarily with the chart that they were using. It just didn't give, we didn't warn them about the mountains and uh-huh. didn't give other information that would have been useful. But that being said, you know, there's limited space, you know, that not faulting the chart manufacturer, but, you know, just saying that all the information that was necessary maybe wasn't there. Okay. And there was also an issue with the ground proximity warning system on this plane. Oh. Yeah, the ground proximity warning system installed on this aircraft was designed to generate the basic warning from five modes. The two important ones related to this incident are mode two, which is excessive closure rate, and mode four, unsafe terrain clearance, not in landing configuration. The airplane, you know, like we talked about, had its landing gear lowered and the flaps were deployed when it was getting close to the mountain, so the mode four alarm would not have gone off. Mode four, alarm... It, like it's we've I think we've talked about this before mm-hmm. without calling it the mode four alarm. It's like when ground proximity warning detects that the plane's getting close to the ground but isn't configured for a landing. It's like, hey, the ground's really close and your gear and your flaps aren't down. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Like that kind of thing. But their gear and flaps were down, so mode four isn't gonna tell them anything. It's gonna assume, oh, gear and flaps are down, we're probably getting ready to land. Okay, so then what should what should have gone off? So that's why we also mentioned mode two, excessive closure rate, which okay. we'll um, get to here in just a second. So the aircraft was approaching the mountains at a speed of 133 knots, which gave a maximum closure rate of about 1,800 feet per minute. However, the closure rate that gives an alarm for mode two is between 2,253 and 3,000 feet per minute. So it wasn't closing fast enough for the mode two alarm to go off. Because it was a mountain? Because it was like slowly going up or right they were approaching at 1800 feet per minute and the minimum for the mode two alarm to go off would be about 2200 feet a minute so they were approaching it but not fast enough for the alarm to go off Mm. so it was confirmed that this was normal operation that the ground proximity warning system did not generate any warning but that being said in 1989 boeing issued a service bulletin to install an update which had the capability to provide operators selected automatic radio altitude callouts not available in the current version and recommended to perform the service bulletin. However, Air China's maintenance contractor stated that the bulletin had not been received and the ground proximity warning system on this aircraft was not modified. Boeing officials stated they had sent the bulletin to Air China, but the dispatch records could not be verified since they're maintained only up to six years. So the update would have like verbally alerted them uh-huh. how far they were above the ground. And I'm sure you've heard it. We've talked about it before where you hear the automated voice that's like 500, 400, mm-hmm. you know, 300, like as they're coming into land. Boeing had recommended they install this back in 1989. Air China says they never got the memo. And there was no way to verify it because that was 13 years before this incident. Mm, and it probably would have been like a fax. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a fax or a letter, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows how they would have gotten it to them back then. And that would have been useful because, you know, as they were closing on the mountain, then the voice would have started going off, alerting them like, oh, hey, wait, we're getting really low. We're getting really close to the terrain. And it'll work even though like it's more like terrain in front of them rather than like terrain below them. Or I guess yeah, they were. The, the GPWS like sends signals kind of in front, of, like down and in front of the plane. Okay. It doesn't point straight down. Like DME okay. for measuring altitude typically looks straight down. Ground mm-hmm. proximity warning kind of looks forward because... It's trying to, you know, alert them if they're getting close to the ground in front of them as they're going forward. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's super cool. Yeah. 
The Air Traffic Control Authority for this airport has a system called the Minimum Safe Altitude Warning System. They established the value of the Minimum Safe Altitude Warning in consideration of the height of the mountain, which is 2,076 feet, and low altitude warnings may be displayed on the radar scope even when an aircraft flies normally below the altitude of 2,800 feet in the vicinity of the airport. The Minimum Safe Altitude Warning System, by the way, is the MSAW. If you hear me say MSAW, that's what it is. Okay. The area that the MSAW would activate included the circling approach areas for both Category D and C aircraft while flying below 2,800 feet during a normal base turn maneuver to runway 18 right. Analysis of the radar track of Flight 129 showed two low-altitude predictive warnings as aircraft passed outside the Category C area and three other warnings before impact with the mountain. There was no indication there was any malfunction with the radar, MSAW, or other equipment that would have prevented the low-altitude warnings from being displayed on the radar scopes. The analysis showed that those were normal warnings. The MSAW system at the airport was designed and produced to display only visual warnings. Thus, unless the controllers had been continuously monitoring the radar scope or their bright display, they would not have been able to recognize the warnings in progress and thereby to provide safety alerts in a timely manner. So essentially, it's like they had a warning system, but when doing the circling approach, it would regularly go off. It was the kind of thing where it's like, oh, yeah, you know, that that thing, it goes off all the time. Like they kind of start... It gets uh, to the point where people just kind of ignore it. It's like, oh, yeah, that's just the worst the kind of warning because then it's right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's what they're saying here. It's like unless the controller was actively looking at it and monitoring that specifically, then they wouldn't have realized that, hey, this is a real warning and not just like the warning that goes off all the time. However, it's a uh, common practice in many other installations at domestic or overseas airport, as well as the International Civil Aviation Organization recommendation that the MSAW incorporates both acoustic and visual warning functions. So also should have probably given an, uh, an auditory alert. Human factors considerations uh, regarding controller vigilance during monitoring of radar scopes dictate that the acoustic warning function should be included to complement the visual warning, particularly to alert the controllers and their supervisors to an impending problem that might otherwise be overlooked. And I mentioned uh, earlier that you know the controller could be looking at their radar scope or bright display. The bright is a radar scope in the tower that's designed to be usable under bright conditions. Uh, you know how it can be hard to see screens in sunlight sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like its name says, Bright. <laughs> That's cool, though. Yeah, the primary and secondary local controllers stated that they used the Bright to observe Flight 129 approaching 20 nautical miles northwest of the airport under approach control, and they realized it disappeared from the radar in the course of the search for the aircraft after radio communication was lost. Thus, they probably did not watch the Bright while Flight 129 was conducting the circling approach. When visual monitoring of Flight 129 became difficult and the aircraft went out of sight, the tower bright could have been used by the local controller as an aid to determine its position. Remember I said the controller couldn't see the plane and started asking, hey, can anyone else see that plane? Are they circling? Uh-huh. They didn't actually go look at the bright. The bright would have helped them see exactly where it is. Okay. Yeah. Just like another lapse, something that could have been done better to help prevent this. Uh, and since there was no other traffic under tower control except for this flight, had one of the two or both of the controllers referred to the bright screen, the MSAW low-altitude warnings could also have been observed. So, I mean, they should have gone. When they couldn't see the plane and, you know, visibility was poor, they should have gone uh-huh. and looked at the screen. They, would, they could have potentially seen the warnings, realized they were real, and then done something about it. Yeah, but they, they were distracted. Yeah, they were looking out the window instead of, you know, looking at the bright display. Man, I just think about people trying to park and then they run into the car in front of them. <laughs> yeah, or like... You, you know, you hit that little brick. Yeah. What is that? Like that little curb or something. You can be so focused on other things looking around that you don't see what's immediately in front of you. 
Uh, luckily, when you're parking, you don't have clouds. Yeah. <laughs> obscuring your, I mean, your you vision. You can't have fog. You can't have fog. But yeah. not like that. You're not going 133 knots. So they have uh, their findings here in the report. The flight crew's training for the circling approach was conducted with a simulator only for the Beijing airport. They had never been trained for the circling approach to the Busan Gimhe Airport's runway 18 right. The crew resource management training of Air China was insufficient for the three flight crew complement. There's definitely some CRM failures there. The captain taking on the entire workload. The first officer not advising a go around or not being mm-hmm. more aggressive about advising the go around when they lost visual contact with the runway. Just like, again, it's never one thing, right? That's what we've learned over and over. It's always like these little bits and pieces of information. Yeah. Or little bits and pieces of um, failures. Air China did not perform the improving action for service bulletin 767-34-0067, which was issued by the Boeing company for the reinforcement of the ground proximity warning system functions. That's what we talked about. They didn't do the update. They said they never got notified about it. Air China provided one set of Jepson manuals to the flight crew, which the captain was using during the instrument approach, making it difficult for the other flight crew members to cross-check the information in the manuals. Uh, It'd be more useful if everyone had one. That way everyone could follow along and potentially see problems. Instrument approach charts used by the flight crew of Flight 129 did not depict the high terrain north of the airport. Flight 129 was flown between 150 and 160 knots on the downwind leg, which exceeded the maximum speed of 140 knots of Gimhe Airport's circling approach for Category Charlie, and the width of the downwind leg was narrower than normal, for which corrective actions were inappropriate. Because when it's narrow like that, you know, if you think about it, when you turn base and then turn final, you have Uh to have space to make that turn. Otherwise, you're just like doing a really tight 180 to try to get back on that final. You got to have sufficient space to make that turn. I played Star Pox. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a, that's a good analogy. When the tower controllers lost visual contact with Flight 129 aircraft on the downwind and base legs, they tried to find Flight 129 visually. However, they did not use the tower bright, which is an aid to complement visual observations. Like we said, they should have gone and checked the scope. The local controller asked a question of the flight crew to confirm the position of the aircraft. However, the local controller did not issue any direct warning or advice based on his own subjective awareness of the situation. So he asked where they were, but he didn't, you know, actively say, hey, just so you know, there are mountains north of the airport. Again, doesn't necessarily have to, but doesn't hurt to. Yeah, this is a tight little spot then, you know? Yeah. If there's yeah. mountains that close to... You know, we've talked about that sometimes, you know, yeah. there's, there's some airports where they build them where they can and there's mountains nearby. You just got to be careful. The Korean standard air traffic control procedures and Gimhae-based local procedures did not specify radar monitoring of the aircraft on a circling approach by means of the Bright or the MSAW systems. So I, I, that's absolving the controllers a little bit. They, the, the procedures did not explicitly tell them to go monitor the Bright, but, I mean, they should have. <laughs> you know, It's like, you're right that technically you didn't break the rules, but you should have known better. The MSAW system installed in Gimhae Tower at the time of the accident was designed only to function of visual warning, which was not consistent with the ICAO recommendation to include an oral warning also. Thus, the low altitude warning would not have been noticed in a timely manner unless the controller monitored the bright closely. So again, if it had an auditory component to the warning, they would have heard it and then gone and looked at it. Yeah. The south wind was strong and there were low clouds of precipitation near Gimhae Airport at the time of the accident. And the mountainous area in the north was covered with clouds and fog. And there's some findings related to probable cause. Uh, just a couple of them here. The flight crew of Flight 129 performed the circling approach, not being aware of the weather minima of wide-body aircraft for landing. And in the approach briefing, did not include the missed approach among the items specified in Air China's operation and training manual. So when they did their approach briefing, they didn't cover missed approach, which 
Maybe if they had, it would have been more front of mind for them and they would have done it. Is that, I mean, do they always do that and cover a missed approach? Like, here's what you do? Yeah, they should. Okay. They, you know, they, it's, it's part of it. It's like, if we have a missed approach, we're going to go up to this altitude. We're going to enter this holding pattern. Like, we're going to turn to the left or the right. Like, you go over it. I think we talked about that. What did we talk about? We talked about it in um, a recent episode. The one where the, um, the pilot had the illusion with his inner ear. Uh, and he thought that they were climbing when they weren't, and he nose down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they, before they landed, they had talked about their missed approach and, you know, what altitude they were going to climb up to. Like, it's, it's just standard procedure. The flight crew exercised poor crew resource management and lost situational awareness during the circling approach to runway 18 right, which led them to fly outside of the circling approach area, delaying the base turn contrary to the captain's intention to make a timely base turn. So he knew they had to be on top of the time, but they still ended up delaying a bit, which is why they ended up veering a little too far north and hit the mountain. The flight crew did not execute a missed approach when they lost sight of the runway during the circling approach to runway 18 right, which led them to strike high terrain near the airport. When the first officer advised the captain to execute a missed approach about five seconds before impact, the captain did not react, nor did the first officer initiate the missed approach himself. So again, I mean, that, that's really the, I think the biggest key here and the biggest takeaway mm-hmm. is once they lost visual contact with the runway, they should have called it. Right. It's like, this isn't safe. We're below our minimum. I mean, granted, they had already set themselves up for failure by this point. Uh-huh. Their downwind was too close to the runway. They weren't, you know, keeping an eye on the timer. There were other factors, but definitely once they lost sight, that's it. Mr. Approach, go around, try it again. Yeah. I feel like that that's such a reoccurring thing. It's like, just call a Mr. Approach. Yeah. There's a phenomenon that pilots like to use they call it get their itis or it's like it can it can refer to a lot of things but in this case i would say it's like the crew feels they're so close to the airport like we're almost done let's just land this let's just be done you know you know private pilots might think like oh the weather's a little bad but i really want to go on this trip i really want to get where i'm going i'm going to go anyway even though they might be putting themselves in a dangerous situation it's like Mm -hmm. that urge to just be like let's just do this let's just get it done even though maybe you should be second guessing it yeah so of course there's some uh recommendations here first one Review the Air China training program for circling approaches. Review a method to standardize the contents and procedures of various briefings used by the flight crew in flight. Standard call-out procedures, checklist items for each stage, and checklist execution procedure. Mutual altitude awareness procedure and various application methods. So just, I guess, kind of review all the briefings, all of the call-outs, the checklists. Make sure that, hey, that these are really drilled in and these are followed. Mm Mm-hmm. Review the ground school class subjects of crew resource management curriculum to improve on the actual sense of the field and substantial effect through theory and practice. Just reinforce CRM. Examine the necessity for each required flight crew member to possess their own approach charts for the flight. Again, that's just, they only had one copy of the the chart. Everyone should have had one just to be safe. Okay. Review the need to install uh, enhanced ground proximity warning system in aircraft according to the recommendation by the International Civil Aviation Organization. It's just like a modified updated version of ground proximity warning system that has a lot of those new features like we talked about the altitude call outs and better detection of ground and earlier warnings it's much much better the enhanced system is much better than the original one a review is urged on a method to depict the circling approach area or safety line on the radar video map in order for the local controller to be precisely aware of the aircraft approaching terrain flying outside of the circling approach area in imc which is like bad weather and to provide safety alerts. And a method should be reviewed to complement the specific methods and procedures for the local controller to issue safety alerts to aircraft consistent with the environmental features of the airport. So just, they're really going to review this circling approach on this airport uh-huh. and make sure that everyone's aware, the controllers especially are aware, 
and mindful to keep an eye on planes to make sure they don't cross any boundaries that they shouldn't be crossing. Because it's such a tight right. little pocket of land. And also, yeah. it's you know, like I said, the airport's only at six feet of elevation. It's very close to the water, to the ocean. Mm-hmm. So the weather changes frequently. You know, oh, fog. Yeah. Yeah. Fog could roll in. Winds can change direction, which is why, like, they got this last minute change to the circling approach. Like, they, they need to be on top of this because the weather is so variable at this airport. Yeah. Publish information and guidance associated with hazards in IMC. IMC is like instrument meteorological conditions. It's like poor visibility, either clouds mm-hmm. or fog or rain. So it's just, in general, you can think of IMC as being like bad weather. Uh, You you can't fly visual, it's IMC. Anyway, let me reread that now that I said that. Uh, Publish information and guidance associated with hazards in IMC or night operations in international and domestic publications and develop a method to provide visual aids to pilots flying circling approaches by the installation of obstruction lights for the terrain in close proximity to the circling approach area or runway lead-in lights. So just give more information about these hazards maybe actually put lights on the mountain or like on the obstructions that way like they're easier to see you know like it's the kind of thing where you see for you you know in hindsight you're like well yeah obviously that makes sense but you know if you're the one who has to do it if you're the airport you're like well god you know how many millions of dollars is going to cost us to run electricity up a mountain and install these lights you know we i can see why maybe they didn't they didn't want to do it initially but then you know, people lose their lives and you're like, well, yeah, we, we should have spent the money, you know. Did they end up putting lights up there? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. Let me look. You know, what? I saw something um, driving at night. I, I meant to tell you about it. So I was driving recently uh, across Texas and I saw something. It was like uh, in the horizon, just red lights all flashing simultaneously. I mean, just everywhere I could see and just for like miles and miles, just it was really weird. You know, because they're all flashing simultaneously, and I like looked it up later. It's 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 all wind, uh, wind farms. You know, like oh, like windmills. Yeah, and the th- the reason and I was like, why are how are they all synchronized and why are they all synchronized? And I looked it up. It's because it's they all flash at the same time, so that watching you can get a perspective of like where where the land, like oh. where the, the the elevation and the geography or the topography of the land changes. That makes sense. So you can actually feel like, oh yeah, this is like. You know, at night when you can't see anything, you can actually see like, oh, yeah, here's how the land moves across mm. all these things. So you can see them in conjunction with each other. It's not just a random splattering of red lights, which could be confusing and disorienting. That so makes sense. That cool. Oh, yeah, that's really smart. So I looked it up. I looked mm-hmm. up uh, that airport and I found a list of uh, all of the obstacles in the area and all of the different lights. There's a, <laughs> This is a very long list. Uh-huh. And I see the, the mountain marked here. Uh, it's I see its designation. It's designated a hill. I see... The coordinates where it is, I see its elevation, and under markings, type and color, it says nil. So I'm going to say that there are no lights on it currently. So I'm going to assume that they instead relied on better document publication and better alerts from controllers letting people know about it. Okay. And uh, Dennis, you know, our our producer and researcher, let us know that that airport has a curfew at night between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. Oh. Probably to prohibit you know, times when it's more difficult to see when you would need a light on a mountain, presumably. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, it's. A, I think that airport does have some controversy around it because it is kind of difficult, I believe. And I don't know 100% for certain. I believe that they want to replace it with a new airport. and that, that But I believe that's also been going on for a while. So I don't know necessarily what the status of that is. The last recommendation they have here is the establishment of instrument approach procedures to runway 18 at Gimhe Airport should be examined and a method should be developed to introduce radar monitoring or other latest safety alert systems in consideration of the terrain in vicinity of the final approach course. So just 
keep an eye on the radar, monitor people, let them know if they're uh, veering off or if they need to do something different. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's it. That's Air China 129. I always feel like they're extra frustrating when it's like it's it's so close. They're so close to landing. They're so close to the yeah. airport. This like all these small things at the very end lead to to people uh, passing away. Whatever happened with the captain, was he uh, injured terribly or was he did he ever fly again or what happened? With I him? believe he had some pretty serious injuries. Uh, I think um, everyone who did survive had some pretty serious injuries. The captain specifically I don't know. I can't. I can't answer that. There's really no follow up about him mm-hmm. in the report. I do see that uh, you know the Chinese government kind of defended him, said that it wasn't you know it wasn't his fault that uh, okay. it was more of a procedural problem or issue with that airport that caused this incident. Allegedly, I don't uh-huh. know this for certain. There are some people who claim that the captain Wu Xinlu is a flight instructor uh, for flight simulators at a company in Beijing. Okay. I don't know. Again, I don't know if that's for certain. This is kind of like internet sleuthing. There's no like official report that says yeah. that. But that's that's just the speculation that I've seen on the internet. Okay. So he didn't go into flying again. Maybe he just did the simulations. Yeah. I, and again... Allegedly, I can't say Allegedly. that with, with I can't say that with uh, with any certainty. That's but that's what it seems like. But uh, yeah, that's it. That is uh, Air China Flight One Two Nine. Again, the kind of really frustrating. So close to, so close to landing. So close to nailing it. Just kind of fell apart at the last second. Yeah. Remind everyone to get uh, check out our new merch because it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. We also have a, a new feature. Uh, if you'd like to directly support this podcast and. Um, Get access to ad-free episodes and get access to the episodes the day before they come out for everyone else. You can check out blackboxdownpod.com. All the information's on there. It's $2.99 a month. Uh, if you want to, check it out. Uh, we got a fact on there with all the information about it. You can continue listening in whatever podcast platform you're already listening on. I think it's a great deal. But uh, yeah. go check out blackboxdownpod.com. Yeah, it's a great deal, but also it's just a really good way to help support something that you hopefully like. Yeah, hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> all right, we'll be back again next week with another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.